In the second season of The Unifying Call, we ask hospital leaders and clinicians to reflect on the pandemic and to look ahead to what the future may hold. Presented by Western Health, I'm Lucy Vandenberg. I guess I just wanted to start right back at the basics. You studied, I understand, your first degree was applied biology. What made you choose that to study? Largely, I had a good couple of teachers at school that said, you need to go to university and do something and find something that you enjoy. So I quite enjoyed science and I quite enjoyed biology. So it kind of led me to an applied biology course. And I think in the UK, certainly you pick your universities for the nightlife. So I picked Liverpool and then the course followed. And they always told me that a good sort of science degree would teach you how to think. And therefore, that would be applicable to getting a job post-graduation in any sector, really, in any industry. Did you ever think that somewhere in your future, you'd be on the other side of the world working as the chief executive of a major health service? Was that ever on the cards? I guess doing the degree, no. I kind of assumed I would go into commercial industry. I was a graduate applicant for a management training scheme with Tesco's. It's a huge supermarket, a bit like Coles, I guess, similar sort of thing. And I almost got to the job. I got down to the last, I think, 15, 20 places out of about a 30,000 search thing. So I got close but didn't quite get there. And I described myself as falling into the NHS. Had a whale of a time in the NHS and was pretty ambitious. So I knew that from an early age, if I was going to stay in this particular field because I enjoyed it, then I'd like to be a senior leader in it, preferably a CEO. And I never quite thought it would be Australia at one level. I did the whole backpacking bit in Australia after university more years ago now than I'd care to admit. And loved Australia, but never kind of quite thought I'd get back. And then as I got more senior in the NHS and talked to more international travellers into the NHS from Australia and New Zealand, it sort of thought, well, why not? And then plotted and schemed and worked with a family to make it a reality. And then the opportunities arose and here I am. So now an Aussie citizen, so you can't get rid of me. Oh, okay, fantastic. And you have children as well, is that right? Yes, I got two boys. My eldest has just finished his VCE, so he's done it pretty tough with two years, um, his last two years of school in kind of various stages of lockdowns. So I don't think that he's been at school that often. He's done a lot of homeschooling, which I was tough. And I've got a 13-year-old as well who did his sort of grade seven, grade eight year in homeschool. So they've done it tough, but enjoying the Aussie lifestyle and the opportunities that the sort of climate and the culture over here affords them. How did you as a family unit get through the last couple of years? Did you have any sort of tactics or was there anything that worked well for you other than just sort of trying to get through it the best that you could? I've got to pay tribute to my wife. I escaped to work every day. So she had the real hard job of doing the homeschooling and trying to sort of keep everything together. So my hours got incredibly length. So I think we just had to take it all as we go and try and support it and not be serious or head up. But as I say, I had the easy job. I escaped and she held the fort incredibly well. And I think part of the stuff was just trying to keep in touch with family and friends back in the UK and Australia where you couldn't see people. And I think that was hard in that we sort of moved house just before lockdown, which was great, but we had plans for the family to come visit on both sides at Christmas and last year and that didn't happen because of the COVID restrictions and it won't happen this year. So I think that's been the tricky bit, but Thank goodness for Skype and Zoom and all those things. We've been able to sort of keep in touch with the family in relatively near real time, which is great. So that's helped, but it's also been a kind of bit of a pull for the family to kind of go, oh, we can't see you and we can't get out to see you. That's been tricky, but 
trying to just keep going, go for walks when you could, get out the house and escape the four walls. The kids probably enjoyed playing Xbox as a means of uh, staying in touch with their friends. Yeah. Probably far too much screen time, but it's probably not worth arguing about at that point because it was a pretty challenging situation for everybody to be in. Many of the people I'm sure have faced that as well. Given your family connections in the UK and your prior experience working for the NHS, I'm wondering how you think the two countries have fared when it comes to COVID-19. The UK has recorded 50,000 new COVID cases in the past 24 hours. It's the highest daily increase since mid-January. Despite the high numbers, the government... I think Australia fared well in terms of comparison with deaths and cases and the overrunning of health services and things, but it still was pretty tough here in a different way the longest lockdown in the world. It brought a dividend in terms of protecting people, but it still was incredibly challenging for folk, I'm sure. And still, sadly, a high number of Victorians did die of COVID. So even with those protections in place, the virus was still pretty indiscriminating. But I was talking to my family back in the UK, and we were worried at sort of 700, 800 cases. And certainly when my family, predominantly my parents and my in-laws live, They're a relatively small town by UK standards, 120,000 populations, and they were saying, oh, that's how a case counts now. The UK is 50,000 a day, 60,000 a day, and the numbers just were, you just couldn't comprehend how big that was in comparison to what we were dealing with. But the same things were happening on microcosm. We were trying to treat people in hospital, and the staff at the front line were doing an incredible job dealing with that. And as I say, we were sharing practice and learning across the board, across Victoria, across Australia, and beyond. I think that was the interesting bit for me is how internationally the health communities came together to share learnings and practice and in a way that's probably never happened before. What do you think has been the sort of, if you could have, the single biggest challenge that COVID presented to Western health? And look, you can have more than one. If you could... <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say one, one's going to be pretty tough to know. Okay, that. okay. Yeah, but, uh. <laughs> what for you were the real challenges? And I know that's difficult because they probably evolved over time during different waves and periods. But if you're looking back now... Yeah, I think that the biggest challenge was trying to keep our people safe. Mm. We knew that the organisation was in hotspots of populations with COVID. We knew the West was getting affected disproportionately to the rest of Victoria. The main challenge was how do we use all of the intelligence that our infectious diseases team, our COVID teams were getting to then translate into, well, what's the best level of PPE we can get people into as soon as we can? And how do we keep our people safe? And I think we did a good job at that. We really tried hard. We were often ahead of the curve in terms of the department's guidance. And that's a credit to the individuals that are advising so we could make the right decisions. But the challenge was still that a large number of our staff still got COVID positive. And that was really challenging to deal with, but you're doing your best to keep people safe. And in turn, those staff are answering the call and caring for patients. And I guess another challenge from the community side was we know with the decisions that we made in response to what we were asked to do, that we've stopped patients getting access to care and we stopped visitors getting in to see loved ones. And, and that was pretty hard to continue to knowingly make those decisions where people couldn't have service and they need care and they need surgery and we were kind of saying well we're not able to provide that we've got to sort of do a COVID response and that means that we can't provide you a knee op or a hip replacement or whatever it may have been so I think those probably were the two sort of challenges that stood out for me one was around how do we protect our people and the others was about how do we sort of keep community safe, but also acknowledge the fact we're not treating people that we would normally treat without COVID. We'd be doing those surgeries, we'd be doing those outpatient appointments. 
how well do you think we've worked with our staff to ensure that their psychological well-being has been maintained in the best way that you could possibly expect in these unprecedented circumstances? I saw tears. I saw exhaustion. I saw nurses consoling nurses. I saw um, blood across the ridges of their noses and their ears from wearing PPE for 12 hours at a time, long shifts on their feet, kilometres and kilometres of, of... I think it's been incredibly challenging, to be honest, because most of the normal support structures that our frontline teams use were kind of incredibly hard to do because smiling, supporting colleagues, sharing food, afternoon, morning teas, etc. All that stuff kind of went out the window. Everyone's shrouded in masks and face shields and goggles and gowns. and It makes that sort of human interaction really challenging. You ask me what I'm worried about as their manager. I'm worried I'm going to have to ask them to stand up and do it again. And they will. Now, these are senior... We set up breakout rooms and our pastoral care and social work and psychological teams did a huge amount of work to staff those and support staff. We had EAP providers on site to support families and staff because it was incredibly challenging. And I know from when I was doing the podcast series with staff, just the challenges that they were knowingly coming into a high-risk environment to care for infected patients or suspected infected patients. And they were giving it their all and they were balancing that with challenges with homeschooling. They were doing it with potentially families saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't be going to work because it's risky. And they were saying, no, no, we know what we're doing. It was pretty challenging. And I remember talking to the team from 2D and they were saying that they had family connections that were nurses back overseas who had lost lives. And yeah, it was all pretty raw, yet people continued to come in and do incredible work to support patients and in need of care. And I think we continue to try and wrap around that support because the teams have done a huge amount of work, both the clinical staff and those that are supporting, because it takes both sides of that coin, both clinical and support, to actually care for patients. And people are fatigued, they've worked hard, they've worked long hours, they've worn PPE for what feels like forever now, but it's probably about 20-odd months. There's not been much downtime for anybody. So I think we're still trying to make sure that we can support staff well-being and psychological health as much as we can and a whole range of different mechanisms for that. So I think we'll continue to have to do that. It's been an incredibly traumatic and, and challenging two years. We have heard some reports about predictions of a mass exodus of healthcare workers in the media and we've also heard these theories around the Great Resignation or people moving to the regions. Is that something that concerns you? I'm not quite sure that I fully believe the fact that that will happen in the seismic stuff that is happening because people will choose to live and work where they choose to live and work. So there will be movement, but I don't think it's going to be absolutely huge, I hope. I think we've got a fabulous staff group. They're all day in, day out for the communities in which they live and work and serve. And that's a huge pull, I think, and an attractor. And as is the exciting sort of, you know, program we've got in terms of growth and expansion. So I'm hoping that we attract lots of staff, possibly from other hospitals that they want to get out of and come to us. The pandemic has made many of us reassess what's really important in our lives. For some of us, it's meant starting up new hobbies. For others, it's meant adopting lifestyle changes, which we may or may not keep up. I'm wondering whether it's influenced you in any way. I think it has, but it probably hasn't changed much of what I do. I think the job as a CEO, the job in the health service, whatever role you have, is a pretty hectic job most of the time, even outside of a pandemic. Yes. There's always challenges. So I've always 
try to make sure that I do things away from work. I put the phone down. I stop doing emails. I don't send emails to colleagues, staff to kind of say, oh, I'm doing this at 9.30, 10 o'clock at night so that they have to respond. It's just the wrong thing to do. So I've always rode my bike. I probably tend to do that more through COVID because it was a great way to escape with some headphones and some music just to sort of get out of the sort of mindset and just go and ride by the water or something. Oh, nice. Like a road bike. Yeah, well, sort of a mountain bike. It's just to sort of get on some of those paths in the wetlands. So um, I get out on my bike and ride about, ride down the beach, whatever it is. I took up boxing uh, again, which was good fun, just to keep fit. And you could punch a punch bag, and that was quite entertaining to get the stresses out. But I haven't, well, I suppose the only thing I have changed is I succumbed. My family wanted a dog. I'm not quite a dog person, but. We finally bought a puppy and that's a new addition to the household, which has been kind of entertaining. Oh, that's lovely. What sort of dog did you get? It's a Pouchon, so it's a cross between a poodle and a Bichon freeze. Kind of entertaining, sort of now having puppy, which is almost like having a baby back in the house, which I thought I'd sort of long since grown out of. The kids are now able to, well, I would say look after themselves, but probably not quite true. But they're of an age where you can leave them without having to do much. And uh, with a puppy now, that's <laughs> brought back all those fun memories. If you can't just walk out the door and say, we're off, see you later. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, that's exciting. A little birdie told me that you actually have a little bit of a fear of needles. Yes, I don't do needles at all well. So I tend to and have passed out numerous times at the sight of needles. I'm a big suck. So I laid on the couch in the vaccination place, didn't look, close my eyes and wait until they told me it was all finished. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, good for you. But yes, I'm a bit of a big lump to be falling over and picking up and hitting things. So I tend to sort of, you know, lay down or sit down gingerly and look the other way and not look at the needle at all. Russell, how would you describe your leadership style? I mean, to me, as an observer, you seem quite relaxed and personable. But if you were to assess your own style, which I know is tricky, (laughs) how would you describe yourself? My style is trying to be approachable, human, not this kind of removed figure. And a, a previous mentor and CEO of mine said to me, you know, once you get elevated to senior levels, you think that people take on this mysterious air of you're all suddenly very important and you know you've kind of got one step closer to heaven almost. (laughs) Don't ever forget you're just a regular person that can make their lives easier. And that stuck with me and that's what I try and, and do to support people. And it's a tough job. So if you can do that with humor and support staff and be approachable, that's kind of my style. I would describe it as it's probably not what the textbooks say, but I just think you've got to be genuine and authentic. And if you're not who you are, I always chuckle at interviews and tell people that the staff at Western are phenomenally great and they've got a fabulous bullshit meter, so they spot a phony at 10 paces. (laughs) And, you know, that's borne out on so many occasions. So if you're not authentic and genuine, people will spot through it. What's the point? When you reflect on the past couple of years, what to you really stands out? I think the key bit for me is the incredible effort that our staff and our community have put in to support hospitals across the board and our clinical teams. I think in wave two, our residential in-reach services were incredible. Staff volunteered to go into some of the most challenging environments that some people will ever have to face and provide incredible care and passion to people in the last stages of their life 
that would have been, you know, I, I can't even think about how challenging that would be. Our guys in the ICUs and in EDs, day in, day out, but overlaid with COVID with no relatives and no visitors. So I, I think our staff across the board have been incredible and they have just risen and risen again to answer the call to support community and equally I think our community have been unbelievable. The West is not a hugely wealthy place but our community have donated to the hospital and to staff. Food, money, gifts, they've supported us when we've made tough calls about no visitors, no carers beyond certain points in ED etc and they've just took it and understood it and haven't generally rallied against whoever was giving them the bad news that they couldn't progress. That was my reflection, is that the effort by staff was just out of this world, and that was matched by community. That's been incredibly humbling to sort of be a part of and to witness. It's just been an incredibly humbling experience to see staff give so much for so long and, and continue to give. What would you say to staff if they have the opportunity to have some, oh, I don't want to jinx us, but to have some downtime over the summer holidays? And, and are you yourself planning on having a little bit of a break before we swing into 2022? I think if people are having a break, please enjoy it. Celebrate with family, friends, and travel. As always, do it as safely as you can and listen out for all those helpful guidance. I'm not going to say rules, but guidance and things that can help you do that safely. If you're eligible, get your vaccination and boosters, third doses, whichever you prefer. And yes, I'll have a few days. I think I've got about 10 days off to spend some time with the family and turn the phone off and turn the emails off and then come back and start again in a new year post-Christmas and post-celebration. So I think if you can, please take some downtime because everyone needs a bit of a rest and a bit of a switch off. This has been The Unifying Call, presented by Western Health. Please share this episode with colleagues, family and friends. We'd love you to leave a review and a rating. For more information, follow the links in the podcast description.